0: Okay, Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, My name is uh, Brandon Hamber. I'm from the Transitional Justice Institute and INCOR at Ulster University. I'd really like to welcome you to our Dealing with the Past uh, seminar series. Uh, Part of the idea of the seminar series has been to discuss the Stormont House Agreement, uh, Dealing with the Past in Northern Ireland. And our plan has been to look at a range of different topics over the year, We'd originally planned to do these face-to-face, uh, but we've now adapted these to the online environment. And in fact, it's worked really well. We've had uh, often up to 100 people. One of our seminars had 250 people, and so it's been a great way of, of reaching out. This uh, seminar series, the Dealing with the Past in Northern Ireland Seminar Series, is an initiative of the Transitional Justice Institute in Corp working in partnership with Healing Through Remembering, as well as myself, the John Hume and Thomas P. O'Neill Chair in Peace. So you're all really welcome, uh, and it's great also to be partnering with Healing Through Remembering, who've been instrumental in helping us reach a much wider community-based audience. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I'm just having a quick look. At the moment, we have about 60 people online, which is fantastic. If you have any sound or other problems, just follow the chat box in the bottom right. Uh, You can also drop us a note uh, during the talk. The the talk today is entitled uh, Dealing with the Past and the Stormont House Agreement is a Transformative Gender Approach Possible, which of course is a a vitally important component of the the Dealing with the Past agenda. Our speakers are Claire Hackett and Dr. Catherine O'Rourke. Claire Hackett is from Healing Through Remembering and also the Falls Community Council. Dr. Catherine O'Rourke is the Director of the Transitional Justice Institute and also a Senior Lecturer in Human Rights and International Law at uh, Ulster University. What I would like to do is firstly welcome our speakers and thanks very much for making the time and and preparing this talk, as I said, on a really important issue for us. Uh, We'll give you about 30 to 40 minutes together to make your presentation. Uh, We will then have questions for about 30 to 40 minutes. I'll explain a little bit later how we'll run run the questions. Uh, Just to remind everybody, we've turned your sound and your video off uh, other than for the speakers just to keep the bandwidth as open as possible. But as I said, we will speak uh, about the questions afterwards. If you have any issues, drop them in the chat box on the, the bottom right of your screen. But finally, welcome once again to Claire and to Catherine. It's great to have you here, and we look forward to your talk. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Brandon, for the welcome and, um, and indeed for the invitation to to talk to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be um, able to present and particularly uh, particularly nice to be presenting with Claire um, Hackett, who I've worked with, this was on issues around this um, for quite a long time. Um, so um, and also as, as TGI director, I'm very pleased to see us involved in this initiative. Um, so our talk today um, is going to have uh, two fairly distinct components. Um, I'm going to kick off by talking about um, work that Claire and I are involved in, uh, with a number of others, and some of whom are here, um, in dealing with, in developing gender principles for dealing with the legacy of the past. And I want to talk about the uh, background and context of that initiative and then use that as an opportunity, I suppose, to um, to think as more fundamentally about why the process to deal with the past here has been so exclusionary on gender grounds, um, including on uh, for sexual gender minorities for, for LGBTQ communities. Um, and I'm going to leave off of that point to Claire and she's going to talk more about the question of um, dealing with the past and LGBTQ communities and how we might recover uh, those stories in a process to deal with the past. Um, So i'm going to commence with um this quote i i sort of feel bad singling out um dennis bradley because i have enormous respect for him and the work he did with the consultative group um but i do find this quote is kind of wonderfully illustrative of um, the boundaries of the debate around dealing with the past um the consultative group on the past was probably the best eight people i've ever worked with in my life and i think it's a wonderful report i haven't been at a gathering ever since that has actually taken it apart um at a substantive level that was one of my fears that we had missed something very big and um, i think like i say i think this illustrates very nicely the on the kind of unseen completely sort of invisible gendered boundaries of the debate on dealing with the past and because i want to suggest that actually the consultative group um just as previous initiatives and subsequent initiatives um did in fact miss something very big um they found it unnecessary to comment on the overwhelmingly male profile of those who lost lives, uh, the overwhelmingly female profile of um, those who were dealing with, they were speaking to who had been bereaved by the conflict. Um, the over Again, the fact that it was primarily men who were in decision-making positions when they were conducting their work um, in terms of political parties, criminal justice institutions. Um, all of those things, the fact that those things go unremarked upon in the report does I think say something quite telling about the taken for grantedness of the gender profile of dealing with the past constituencies and and power dynamics. Um, And it's that taken for grantedness that I want to sort of um, challenge and and take up today. Um, And of course, it's important to note that that taken for grantedness about gender, um, it didn't start with, certainly didn't start with the consultative group. Uh, It was there in the Bloomfield report. Uh, It was there um, in, in both civil society and official initiatives around dealing with the past that predated the consultative group so I suppose, given that um, context and background, it's it's it was probably unsurprising um, that when the Stormont House Agreement was um, agreed in a sort of watershed moment in, in December 2014, uh, where we finally where finally we saw success in terms of having the major political parties and both governments um, agree to comprehensive linked mechanisms to deal with the past. Um, That whilst there was enormous promise um, in that agreement and in the institutions uh, that were established, that were provided for, um, again, um, there was also, I think, whilst there was that promise, there was also perils and and again repeating some of the gender exclusions that had already been um, well established um, by 2014 and by the time of the Stormont House Agreement. And those exclusions we can think about in in lots of ways. I mean, essentially, the agreement is is again characterized by silence on gender. Um, There's a visible exclusion of women. Um, It's evident for the failures. The agreement, while it does articulate a set of principles that underpin the agreement, um, those principles don't include anything about the inclusion of women, um, any protections around the human rights of women, Uh, whereas the text makes detailed provisions to ensure political parties' representation it doesn't talk anything about gender representation. Um, likewise, no provisions made for gender expertise in personnel arrangements. But beneath those visible exclusions of the Stormont House Agreement are the you know apparently neutral principles and rules that in practice do op- operate differently for women and men. Um so most notably and importantly, the key um the key Stormont House mechanisms focus on conflict deaths, the vast majority of which were men. Um By contrast, the socioeconomic harm uh, imposed, for example, by the loss of male breadwinners, um, the ongoing harm of protracted campaigns for accountability and justice for the loss of a loved one um, experienced by surviving female family members um, were not given the same provision. So um, in this way, then, ostensibly gender neutral mandates um, of these mechanisms, um, they offer limited prospects to identify, acknowledge, and redress these sort of latter gendered harms. So it was in response to um what we saw as the both the promise um and the peril i suppose of all the storm and house agreement that um uh, myself and claire and um a number of others who some of whom are on today and i hope will speak up um from rights watch uk for the Pat newton center from um from wave uh committee on the administration of justice relatives for justice the equality coalition Um, and Ulster University uh, sort of convened ourselves um, informally in early 2015 to see um, if there was a positive intervention we might be able to make around um, improving and enhancing the Stormwater House Agreement um, and its provision for recognising gender harm and ensuring an inclusive process. Um, And recognising the speed at which at the time things seemed to be developing quite quickly and of course we now know that to be untrue um, there was great urgency um, around the intervention, and um, what we resolved to do was to develop a set of principles that would, um, we would hope at least, it would inform the ultimate implementation and design of the institutions envisaged by the Stormont House Agreement. Um, so we initially developed some draft principles, um, drawing on the expertise of the group members. Um, And then we secured some small funds from the Irish Government Reconciliation Fund uh, to conduct a small consultation with women who had been bereaved by the conflict in Derry, Armagh and Belfast uh, to see what they thought about the principles. And the those workshop discussions, they proved really valuable. um, I think, first and foremost, in affirming the importance of of the initiative, um, the importance of the gender principles, because contrary to the official reports and approaches that I started off with, um, which just sort of took for granted uh, gender profile um, and dynamics. Um, actually, when we talked to women who were bereaved by the conflict um, in these workshops, they were deeply aware of the many ways in which their gender had shaped their experiences um, of dealing with the past um, in terms of the harms that they experienced, in terms of the resources and coping strategies um, that they uh, utilized um and in terms importantly i think of their interactions with the overwhelmingly male staff of the institutions that were involved in dealing with the past um they emphasised a variety of structural gendered obstacles that they encountered um, in their efforts to pursue accountability for the deaths of their loved ones and they discussed extensive prior negative experience of engaging previous official processes to deal with the past um they talked i mean you know to quote uh, there was there was a reference to patriarchal structures of previous processes, and um, recounting uh, being made to feel as though they were not taken seriously and their concerns and experiences were not adequately reflected. So the workshops thus highlighted a number of key issues that became central to the final gender principles. Um, I mean first it was clear there was an acute need for more information to be provided um, to victims and survivors about the detail of the plant mechanisms. Um, second it was obvious that the women understood their experiences Um, of harm, um, of their coping strategies, and of their engagements with official processes as deeply shaped by their gender, Um, and it was also clear that there were a a range of ways in which those gendered experiences were also impacting their priorities in planned new institutions to come forward. Um, So to speak a little further then about the, the actual substance of the principles. Well, we developed um, these 10 principles, um, and I do provide, there's links at the end of the presentation to the principles. They are publicly available, um, as, as well as the workshop report. Um, but the 10 principles, and really they cohere around kind of four pillars. Um, and the first of those is the need to what we call surface gender, um, which, as I, which as I started by saying, with has really not been done in any uh, official process to deal with the past. Um, a need to surface gender and women's experiences specifically, um, that whilst is everywhere in dealing with the past, that it was nowhere acknowledged. So certainly for our workshop participants, you know, they did highlight how more than any other personal characteristic, gender was a key determinant of whether one was likely to be accessing a transitional justice mechanism, uh, primarily women, or in an investigative or decision-making position in those institutions, which is overwhelmingly men. Um, and because of that gender profile, um, anything that is, any institutions that would be established to have an active consideration around the gender implications of design um, and also an importance to gender parity and um, the surfacing of diverse gender harm. Um, the second pillar was around the question of, of process orientation. So what became clear in the workshop consultations was that many of the women who had been bereaved they were more negatively impacted by a disempowering process of dealing with official institutions than with the specific outcomes of those engagements. It was it was clear that. Process mattered a great deal, um, and the pr- the principles therefore emphasise the need for a recalibration of priorities and approaches to dealing with the past. That treat victims with dignity and operate flexible modes of participation. Um, the third pillar then is around gender inclusiveness and the idea that this must be built into the bricks of any new institutions. Um, so a number of the principles emphasise the structural dimension of integrating gender, including the need for proactive strategies to mitigate and. Um, Gendered obstacles to inclusion, you know, such as the very sort of prosaic issues around things like care obligations. Um, also things like prior negative experiences of exclusively male staffed investigations. But there would need to be a strategy around addressing those prior experiences and building confidence. And um, a further structural dimension and staffing and recruitment, um, not just in terms of numbers, but actually about rethinking recruitment criteria in a way that valued gender expertise and lived experience of dealing with the past. Um, and that a recruitment process that simply sort of reproduces the existing gender profiles of these institutions um, would be um, prima facie illegitimate. And then finally, the principles talk about um, addressing the bigger picture dynamics of dealing with the past, recognizing that the institutions will not only deal with individual victims and stories, and um, the principles provide for the interrogation of larger structural gender dynamics and the causes, conduct and consequences of the conflict. Um, and together, we uh, we want to suggest that these provide sort of pillars of what we call a transformative gender approach to dealing with the past. Um, now, we of course um, acknowledge that in making this intervention, um, given the, the the surrounding circumstances around sort of urgency and also the need to frame our demands in a way that um, connected with policymakers and with other civil society actors. Um, You know, it can be difficult to operationalize a more nuanced concept of gender, Um, and certainly we were all aware of the dangers of gender essentialism, um, of conflating women with victims and their familial relationships to others, um, as well as of neglecting male victimhood. Um, Nevertheless, in the urgency of devising an intervention and framing it in a way that connected with policymakers, um, the initiative does talk in quite broad terms about the primary roles of women as the bereaved and men, Um, either as those killed in the conflict or in decision-making authority and this approach of course does conceal um, other more complex gender identities and um, we view this paper as an opportunity to do a bit of further thinking around around that question of of gender and more complex gender identities Um, but it is of course important to note that a process that is exclusionary and fails to meet the gendered needs of women bereaved by conflict will be exclusionary on other gender grounds also. Um, so those exclusions and those kind of more fundamental gender exclusions um, are something I want to then speak to in uh, my concluding uh, my concluding comments. So why has the um, process here been so exclusionary on these kind of broader gender grounds? Well, um, I always find title quite useful in thinking about this and thinking about how in in transitional justice what is deemed just is contingent and informed by prior injustices so how one um devises uh, institutions for the future um is very much an, uh, uh, influenced by how one understands the injustices of the past and of course if we and that's been quite an important feminist entry point to transitional justice you know feminist unease with the from of transitional justice of being kind of male-defined political violence the two as the cessation of that male-defined public violence, and because embedded with that, within that are deeply gendered boundaries to transitional justice and its role in moving society out of, out of conflict. So, if we apply that lens um, to here in the north, excuse me, um, we—it's not—it's uh, not hard to see the gendered boundaries around our transition. Um, so, why is it that we were the last part of these islands? To deliver on issues such as marriage equality um, and abortion um, if we had a peace process that was defined by human rights and equality um, how have they been so uh, slow to deliver for sexual and gender minorities um likewise we've seen the ways in which counter-majoritarian measures um, and structures that were fundamental to the peace process and the new democratic institutions um have been used to obstruct gender and sexual rights and so Institutions and structures that were meant to protect minorities end up being used against minorities um, And we also see um, Issues around sort of continuing insecurity of LGBTQ groups and here I want to cite uh, work by my TJI colleague Fidel Ash um, Who conducted quite extensive qualitative work with members of the LGBTQ community in the last couple of years I'm asking specifically about this question their experience transition and their personal experience of security through the transition and what she found was a remarkable story of continuity continuity and insecurity um, and that had issues to do with community relationships with religious communities and also with the police and legacies of relationships with the police so if we adopt um, titles definition and approach on the relationship between the from and the two of transition and if the gendered outcomes have been so uneven um, often iniquitous in our transition um, what does that say about the from of that transition? What does it say about how we understand gender, gender roles and identities, in particular, um, gendered harm in the past that is to be dealt with? Well, dealing with the past is, um, I mean, <laughs> it's axiomatic, it's, it's a contested area, it's a, it's a difficult political issue and um, in the literature it tends to talk about that as a sort of meta-conflict. So the the conflict about what the conflict was about. Um, and different meta-conflict stances are underwritten by different positions on, on transitional justice, whether it should be internationalized, whether it should be local, whether it should be focused on civil and political harms or others, um, how it should approach the state. Um and there's no, you know, there's there's no sort of uniform feminist or queer consensus on what um on the meta conflict. Um, Instead, um, women and sexual gender minorities will stand, have positions, um, will be positioned towards the meta conflict in ways that reflect prior political positions, um, albeit in ways that um, may be different from a masculine norm. And dealing with the past and transitional justice is an issue at the heart of the North's meta conflict um, over its legitimacy and its actors and its harms. And that debate around dealing with the past, it's, it um, embodies fundamentally opposed understandings of political violence that prevailed. Um, but what is, what is clear from the sort of alternative readings of the conflict in the North, um, and one's view on the violence of state and non-state actors, um, what is clear about those alternative readings of the violence in the North um, is that within the estab- those established kind of meta-conflict boundaries, Uh, Women and sexual and gender minorities don't constitute a constituency Um, and women and gender as a political identity are not really recognized stakeholders in that meta-conflict. But gender and sexual identities do, of course, intersect with meta-conflict dynamics in manifold ways. Um, And some examples are, so for example, the UK government's kind of construction of local sensibilities and shared cultural distinctiveness of both communities you know using that language very explicitly and overtly during the troubles to legitimate and justify um a refusal to decriminalize uh, homosexuality um, refusal to extend abortion legislation um that local that these sort of perceived local sensibilities uh, across community and um, on regressive gendered issues um were you know used in ways that intersected and and uh shored up conflict divisions um there's also a growing body of evidence around how um uh how harassment um by police and non-state actors intersected with gender and sexual identity particularly how um the fear or threat of disclosure of one's um sexual orientation was used against individuals to have them to inform um and then of course the sort of ongoing knotty issue of of sort of sexuality and national identity and how we now are hearing more about um, how people felt that to disclose uh, being gay was in some way sort of unhelpful or disloyal to their prior national community and identity. Um, So, and of course, I mean, these are not the sorts of experiences that dealing with the past in the North um, has been designed to, to surface. Uh, these are not the sorts of experiences that it's been designed to value and acknowledge um, either at an individual um, or at a more, system, more systematic level and this has led to a reinforcing dynamic in which we have little documentation of LGBTQ experiences of the conflict and its legacy um, which is then uh, a difficult and unfortunate context in which to try to find out more um, and again we have these kind of past dependencies that because the question hasn't been asked or investigated before Um, it becomes excluded in the debate going forward Um, so I think with that I'm going to hand over to Claire um, to talk more about her work thank you
2: thank you very much Catherine and um, what I'm going to say is very much going to lead on from that I mean Catherine has talked about the principles for gender integration and how that work that we did on gender exclusion also I think gives us a way to understand LGBTQ exclusion but I want to first acknowledge um, healing through Remembrance core principles for dealing with the past because I think they're really relevant here as well they're framed as a societal process and individual and they talk about the need for urgency while also recognizing that dealing with the past is generational We refer to a societal responsibility to deal with the past in order to prevent recurrence and to protect future generations. And underpinning the principles is the shared responsibility to build a better future. And I interpret all of this as doing the most that we can do now and not leaving this work for future generations. And it's these values that I also think of when I'm advocating for integration of gender and LGBT at a time when it seems like the ground for dealing with the past is shrinking, not expanding. The storm House Agreement provisions for dealing with the legacy of the conflict were very imperfect, but have now been reduced even further with the announcement from the Secretary of State at the end of March. And I suppose I'm also really struck by what we are learning in this moment from the Black Lives Matter movement about the consequences of not dealing with the past in various places. I mean the Williams report into the causes of what is known as the Windrush Scandal makes it clear that it was able to happen because of home office officials and the public's poor understanding of Britain's colonial history so thinking of all of that I want in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes to talk through some of the dynamics of LGBT exclusion using my experience of working as a volunteer in lesbian line for 16 years from the mid 1980s, and also my experience of researching a history talk I gave last year called Lesbian Lives in the Irish Revolutionary Period. I also want to say something about ongoing and emerging work on covering the LGBTQ experiences during the conflict and the need for integration of these histories into all of the work on dealing with the past, including truth recovery and acknowledgement, but also other ways of remembering. So I was in my early 20s when I joined Lesbian Line as a volunteer and was just coming out to myself. The line had been started up a few years before. I think one of the founder members, Heather Fleming, uh, is here in this webinar and might say something later. There were only a handful of us. We advertised the helpline in the personal ad section of the Belfast Telegraph and answered the phone every Thursday evening from 7 to 10 p.m. No other papers would take our advert. There was what we thought of, I suppose, as an ideal trajectory for callers when women would call and speak to us a number of times. We would arrange then the meeting, which we called the befriending, and then we would bring the woman along to a social event. And from there, she would become integrated, or a part of the community. So many callers followed this journey, but even more did not. We had many callers who rang us week after week over years. They were not able to meet us for many reasons. Nearly every Thursday night also, we would receive silent calls. And although we could not be sure if some of these were prank calls, we felt that most were from women who could not even speak their experience because of fear. So what we would do was talk into that silence for as long as we could to try and make the connection that we felt the colour was looking for. I have noticed that one of the things that is often said about the gay community during the conflict was that we came together and other differences were forgotten. But I don't think that's completely true. Even in my group of friends, there were differences that were sometimes but not always acknowledged between us. For example, um, some of us were active in the women's movement and others were not. Some of us would go to the marches in support of political status for prisoners and others not. I now know that when I would go to the annual picket of our jail, and we called out the names of the women prisoners, that one of those women was lesbian, a woman who many years later I would get to know as a friend and he gave an interview to the World history archive and Falls Community Council about her life history in that interview she doesn't talk about being lesbian I asked her and her interviewer another lesbian woman why and they both said that there was another story she needed to be to express and be acknowledged first and that was her experience as a Republican prisoner who was on the new wash protest he gave birth in jail under horrendous circumstances. I asked them both what would enable her to talk about her whole experience, including her lesbian experience. And they said to me that that was a process, and that another interview would be needed to facilitate that. So it is true that many of us did come there as a gay community and sink or suppress or silo our differences because what connected us was both so essential for us and at the same time so stigmatized by wider society we built a community of support but there were many LGBT people who did not or could not choose this community and transgender people were even more invisible than gay lesbian and bisexual people Working in Lesbian Line showed me that some women were simply not able to be part of a queer community. Women who were trapped in marriages, women with children who had to make impossible choices in a time when being lesbian meant that you could lose custody of your children. Women who had not the means to travel. Women who needed their families or communities more than a precarious LGBT community were therefore forced to suppress a core part of themselves. Some people worked in jobs like teaching or youth work, and they felt terribly vulnerable in those jobs, and I think that was particularly true of gay men. I can also remember talking online to women in the security forces who did not feel able to go to social events because such events had a history of harassment by the security forces and were still very stigmatised. And there was a danger in meeting someone whose background was too different to be safe. I think really that was the case for all those involved in the various armed and military organisations. It must have been the dilemma for Darren Bradshaw, even much later in the conflict in 1997, which was actually the start of the peace process. He was a young RUC officer, aged 24, who was killed by the INLA in a gay bar the Parliament. It was reported that he was a regular at the bar, despite RUC advice against their officers going to city centre bars because of security concerns. He would have not been able to be out in the RUC at the time. He must therefore have felt a strong need to be there, despite the risks, in order to find support for his gay identity. The same year, a few months earlier, clergyman david Templeton, who had been outed in the press day after being beaten by the uvf his case is one of the Mount Vernon uvf collusion cases and remains unresolved despite his having named mark haddock the police informer at the center of those cases to the police before he died we do not actually know how many victims of the conflict were lgbtq because so many were simply not able to acknowledge that part of themselves to others even those closest to them it is hard to contemplate the isolation and despair that so many must have endured and that would have had such consequences for their mental health and another part of the lgbtq experience of the conflict is of those who left and felt compelled to leave in order to survive Catherine is quoted from Brendan Clenahan's article in Inglour Gaffa, The Captain Voice, written in 1991, in which he addresses and challenges his own community from his prison cell, which surely must have been a situation of vulnerability. Reading it, I can see the different layers he is negotiating and the connections he is striving to make when he links Republican struggle with gay and lesbian liberation. He outlines the oppression from state and social institutions particularly the Catholic Church, but also the daily and more intimate oppression from the prejudice of family, friends and comrades. And he also sets out what he sees a necessary strategy for gays and lesbians to become visible, finding support from each other, but also from allies who needed to play a part. This reaching for connections to build momentum for change is familiar, I think, to all LGBTQ activists. You are, of course, also part of other movements, organisations and institutions, and this reflects the complexity of LGBT lives. It took great courage to come out during the conflict years, during a time when male homosexuality had been criminalised until 1981, when Jeff Dodson won his landmark case. When lesbian women were marginalised, when there was little space for bisexual identity and when transgender men and women were not even recognized. Equal marriage and the full citizenship it has come to symbolize was not even an aspiration then. Much of our focus was on protection, safety, survival and finding and joy in coming together. I believe Jeff is in the audience or was in the audience and he has made the point to me that for many, the gay community became family. But this has not been recognized in processes for dealing with the past such as in engagements with the historical inquiries team investigations which did not recognize the partners or close friends of victims as family the gay partners or close friends i hope jeff will be able to come in and maybe comment more on this in the discussion afterwards there's now much ongoing grassroots work that is happening is revealing the complex history of LGBTQ lives during the conflict I know of work by playwrights like Sharon Sickles and Brandon Murphy the kibosh play a queer Keeley in the Marty Versailles the *Queering of the North exhibition project hosted at the Bloody Sunday Museum in January this year the current LGBT heritage project that is being coordinated by Richard O'Leary these are just some examples. The importance of such work was brought home to me when I was researching a talk I gave last year in the James Connolly Centre. I wanted to talk about women who were, or who I thought were, lesbian or bisexual women who were activists in the suffrage, nationalist labour and cultural movements in the Irish revolutionary period of the early 20th century. I ended up with 12 names. These were women who left enough traces behind that I felt I could make a convincing case for including them one thing I had to address at the start of the talk was the question how can we know they were lesbian? this is a question that confronts all those who try to write LGBTQ history and it speaks to the obstacles and the erasures of this history so the way I dealt with this in my talk was to say that we could not be sure that I was going to present evidence and have my own side I said that finding lesbian history is about looking for clues, because for long periods of history, it was not possible for women to freely express their desire and love for women. I acknowledge that none of these women described themselves as lesbian. That was a word that was just coming into usage and awareness at the time, and it had very negative connotations of deviance. But I argued that the 12 women I spoke about lived lives where they shared their lives with another woman, where their primary commitment was to each other so i argued that we have to consider if we're doing them a purpose if we do not recognize this and place them within lesbian history if we do not then we assume that they are heterosexual and this assumption and presumption of heterosexuality is i think at the root of LGBTQ erasure of experience in history it also struck me how little in some ways things had changed from then, the early part of the 20th century to the 1980s, when I was answering phones on lesbian language. By the 80s, lesbian was a word in a way that it was not in the 20s, but it was a difficult word to say. Many women who rang the line did not want to use that word. And we were attuned to that, and we would echo back to our caller the word she used about herself, and often that word was gay. But I think of those women who lived 100 years ago, I see a continuity into the present in the complexity of their lives and identities and activism. But there is also a discontinuity. That space of the early 20th century opened up new roles for women which made it possible for them to find each other. I find it so poignant to consider the closing down of that space with the partition of the country, which led to the dominant role of the Catholic Church in which homosexuality was increasingly characterized as sinful as well as deviant and therefore driven further underground. That talk made me realize more strongly that there's not an inevitable historical march of progress. And to come back as an opening point, we must do the utmost in the present moment. And that must include work on the impact of the conflict on LGBTQ people. Um, there's a final slide that I think Catherine might put up, and that's just to bring us to conclusions and so then open up. So, the legacy of silence and absence. Just because of the extreme stigmatisation of LGBTQ people during the conflict, there has been this legacy of the user of this experience. And I think if we do not see this experience, we do not have the whole picture of the impact and the consequences of the conflict. Continuities and consequences. The erasure of LGBTQ experiences continuities over time, and this historical context needs to be understood. What we do or what we should to do now to uncover LGBTQ experience of the conflict has consequences for what we build in the future. The relevance of the gender principles that Catherine has talked about the outline I mean, I think it's so clear that those principles can be applied um, and like gender it is important that LGBTQ experience is integrated into processes for dealing with the past and for example simply creating an LGBTQ thematic category the principles talk about the importance of process and I think that's really important for allowing an emerging experience to come forward there's a principle of inclusion and I think that shows us a way to allow the experience to emerge in all of its complexity there's a focus on individual experience and that speaks to the same but there's a principle about recognizing the whole person and listening to the whole person and that's about recognizing the full range of needs and services and support that someone might need and that really speaks I think to LGBTQ inclusion there's a principle is that we talked about about addressing the structural obstacles and also about linking to wider patterns and the context about responding um to the bigger picture. So finally, the gender integration group. I just want to say, as has been mentioned, that other members of the gender integration are present. I'm not exactly sure who all is here. I know Leah Wing is definitely here and might come in not so much to ask a question but to help us answer questions and um, Gemma I think Nicole might be here as well and Andre Murphy and uh, Mary and so Catherine and I invite them also to come in with comments and answers to questions and say how they think the principles might be relevant so I think it's now to the part of the session where you can ask questions through the chat function and uh, Brandon will, will moderate
0: okay well uh, thanks thanks very much uh, for really excellent presentation, um, particularly on the the gender principles in that process, which I think gives us a analytical and activist framework for thinking about these issues, which was is really interesting to hear and Thank you, Claire, for sharing your experience uh, i 've known you for many years, and I, I think i haven 't heard you uh, outline that maybe i 've been in the wrong places, but uh, I found it uh, absolutely Fascinating, moving, um, and also just reminding us how much stuff we've missed in this debate over the years. So I just really want to thank you for that uh, personally as well. So uh, the way we are going to do this, uh, Claire mentioned it, is the easiest way we have over 60 people online is if people have questions that we put those into the chat function on the bottom right. Uh, You should see a little purple icon. If you push that, uh, you can put your question into the chat box. I know Claire also mentioned some others who might want to input. Um, if uh, those individuals are there and do want to do that, maybe raise your hand. I will see if I can unmute you individually. I'm not sure if I can, but I will try and do that. Uh, if if those of you from the the, the working group would like to add. So please feel free to put in the question box. Um, Kesane has already posted a question. So I might just lead off with that while Others catch up. Uh, and her question is, uh, personally, just commenting, really interesting and inspiring. And so I second that. Uh, and it's a question to, I think, Catherine, but Claire could answer it too. Uh, please, can you repeat what selection criteria you used for the woman who joined you and your colleagues from the Legacy Gender Integration Group and the workshop that you ran.
1: Thanks, Brandon. Um, well, in terms of the group membership, I think uh, selection criteria might be um, overly formalizing what was um, really, I think, based on kind of prior relationships of people who had uh, worked in different ways in dealing with the past um, through various organi- through through the organisations and and studying and I suppose we kind of knew ourselves as sort of feminists doing legacy work um, so when um, so it was sort of quite opportunistic and it, it was I think was really based on prior relationships in that regard um, uh, and, and Claire I'm sure we'll have more to say on that and then just about the in terms of the workshops I mean we organized those again we were under um, a pretty uh, tight time pressure and we were also just really conscious of the obvious sensitivities of that um so the way that we felt we could do that ethically and responsibly was to invite women who were already um, kind of known and using the services of the different organizations who were involved, that they were invited to, to come to the different workshops and, um, in, in Derry, Armagh and Belfast, and that's how they were they were done, so it wasn't... A, wasn't an academic study in that respect it was sort of an opportunistic intervention uh, yes uh, they they had all been bereaved by the conflict yeah yeah
2: just to say a bit more about that yes it was um you know the, the storm house agreement had been announced and uh, i suppose a number of us knew felt that this was really maybe our last chance to do something that we had been talking about but all of us were also really involved a, a wee bit like um I suppose, the silos that we've been talking about in, the, in our presentation and, you know, your priorities. So um, all of us really involved in the whole work of trying to get a process for dealing with the past and then having this extra job of, you know, trying to um, have a conversation about including gender. So I think the original conversation was maybe myself and Leah Wing and Audrey Murphy, I think. And then we started reaching out to anybody we knew who was working in this area. And we probably um, reached out maybe to about, maybe about 15 women, uh, 15 or 20 women. And then in terms of who could actually commit to that process, there was about eight of us emerged to decide, right, we'll just start meeting every week and see what we can, you know, get together. And that was kind of all done on top of everybody else's work.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, someone, uh, Kate uh, Makungu, uh, has asked: "Is the she said sorry if she missed this, but is the gender integration group finished its work now, or are you still continuing?"
1: No, I mean, no, well, we certainly continue. I mean, it's about sort of trying to find opportunities to influence what's going on. I mean, the last major things we did were we we made a really extensive input on the draft legislation from um, 2018, the NIOS draft legislation and we made a submission to the CEDAW committee last year as well Um, and in fact now um, are contributing some discussions around 1325 review as well so yeah that's still going
0: okay thank you Um, there's a question come in here they're coming in thick and fast now Uh, Richard O'Leary, to what extent do you think patriarchal churches remain an obstacle to progress in gender and LGBT integration?
2: Um, Hello, Richard. Well, you know, Richard, you've asked a question that I think possibly you could answer uh, yourself because I know you have done a lot of work um, in the churches around this. And um, so I think it still continues to have a large influence. I think we can see it. But I also think we've seen, you know, for a number of reasons, you know, the, the declining influence of the church and um, in the island as a whole. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons for that. I mean, but um, I think that has had a, a big fa- factor. But I also think, I suppose when I think of people like you, Richard, then I think of people who are working in the churches as well to make changes. So I think it's a kind of a combination of factors. I think it's still there, um, but not as strongly there as whenever, for example, Brandy McLean was writing about that in 1991.
1: And just to, uh, to mention Fidelma's research again, I mean, when Fidelma Ash was doing her research quite recently um, on what's called LGBT visions of peace, um she did find a very important role for churches um, and an ongoing role actually in maintaining um exclusions so i would direct you to, to her work i think to see what the legacy of the church's role has been
2: and actually i suppose when i think about it I, I do feel that i'm thinking of um differences north and south here as well and um i do feel that the churches now have more of an influence in the north than they're you know than the south. but that's you know, I don't know how much research has been done
0: around that. Okay, thank you. I have a question about, uh, that's written here about uh, resolution 1325, but I'm going to come back to that because there was another question just about the, the your group. Uh, so I thought we'll just, we'll deal with that. It's, it's from Michael Sadipo who uh, many years ago from Nigeria did one of our summer schools uh, so it's great to see him here online it's the the value of these new technologies He had a I suppose a relatively short question he well maybe not but uh, how is the relationship of your group with the larger community members So I presume he's asking about the relationship of the group uh, that worked on the gender principles to sort of wider constituencies I would imagine mmm
2: you think i mean i think there are in the whole field of being with the past which you know includes um the whole victim sector which includes um civil society groups um and academics and then also you know politicians this is a political matter as well so it's quite a wide field of people and so i think though there are connections in the group with, with that whole range and group of people um i'm not sure if that exactly answers your question but i think there's there's a lot of people who kind of like know each other and have dialogue within this sector this sector our own group i think um is a mixture of people who are working in um organizations around this issue Community and civil society organisations, and academics, and that's the kind of particular mixture of us. I'd say one of the things that kind of connects us all is a kind of a, uh, um, values around feminism, and you know, being having a sense of being feminist
0: do you want to add, Catherine, or is that all right? Um, uh,
1: yeah, I have a couple of comments. This was. Um, one thing i was for other purposes lately looking at uh where we the principles were being picked up and cited and one thing i did see that was quite pleasing was that it was the principles were being cited by a fairly wide range of um uh civil society kind of women sector actors uh human rights dealing with the past groups and that that seems to be quite a positive sign groups that wouldn't necessarily prioritised either wouldn't have prioritized gender dealing with the past or wouldn't have prioritized dealing with the past in their feminist work so i thought that was a positive indicator but i I mean i do um think we also need to acknowledge that uh you know the work that that these are difficult issues and they're not sort of universally welcomed and um that manifested actually in our launch when we we had a quite big high profile launch at stormont and uh of the principles and that Launch was attempted by some women who were very unhappy with the work we were doing, who felt that the Stormont House Agreements, that the provisions for limited immunity within that were unacceptable to victims and um, that our work was um, legitimizing an illegitimate process. So, you know, we, we did not resolve those divisions in any, in any way.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, as I said, we had a question here about uh, Resolution 1325, uh, a question from Hannah Short. Do you think the implementation of UN uh, Resolution 1325 within Northern Ireland would have a significant impact on policymakers' thinking when designing and implementing transitional justice mechanisms? And maybe I'll just add to that wearing my Uh, eye to the international community there are a lot of people from other parts of the world online here so it might also be helpful in answering that to outline a little bit of uh, I don't know how to put this northern Ireland's peculiar way in which 1325 has been dealt with or perhaps not been dealt with uh, might be more appropriate just to give a little bit of that context because I I don't think the process has been the same as in many other uh, contexts thanks.
1: uh, yeah, I'll start. I'm sure Claire will yeah. come in. Yeah, so uh this is obviously from someone who who knows that the UK has not included Northern Ireland in its action plan on thirteen twenty-five, and when quizzed by CEDAW and other NGOs, uh says that in its view, thirteen twenty-five doesn't apply to the North because it didn't um meet the conflict threshold under international humanitarian law. So um they have for kind of reasons of reputation and other reasons a resisted application of 1325 and then we have this sort of funny uh parallel reality where the republic of ireland does acknowledge its application and includes northern ireland in its national action plan on 1325 and uh the parties are somewhat divided on the issue in the assembly but nevertheless we have an all party group at the assembly on 1325 uh that is composed of representatives from all of the political parties so it is um Uh, it is a sort of vexed issue but um i mean I suppose the first thing to say is i mean the uk's reluctance to apply 1325 to northern ireland in terms of recognizing the conflict i mean is also the same reason that we don't have a comprehensive process of the past right it's also it's the same sort of dynamics driving both of those factors um i do think if there were formal application of 1325 um it would be we would have to see a better performance on gender and transitional justice, not least because 1325 talks about transitional justice um, measures. So it seems to me that like I do actually think by international standards, the process in the north is particularly bad in not even having rhetorical reference to the importance of women's the inclusion, the importance of recognizing gender, all of those things that. The North is particularly bad, even at a rhetorical level, when we get official uh, processes to deal with the past. And I, I do think 1325 would probably do some ameliorative work around that. Um, that said, I'm very keen that 1325 not be used as an obstacle to um, having a, engendering a transitional justice process. So um, the UK can continue to resist application of 1325 and nevertheless advocate a better process on gender
2: and just to come in that i mean i i agree i think it would be useful um, and in fact catherine you and i work did some work on this you know yeah. several years ago now i think probably about 10 years ago in an organization called hannah's house um and a which was an all-ireland group and you know at that time we were advocating for um you know a, an action plan um for 1325 which would you know bring both the UK and Ireland together around an action plan kind of really modeling it on the uh, good Friday agreement we thought there was a structure there in which um one three two five could be applied and you know that a lot of work could be done through that so um we try we did quite a lot of kind of like education work around the conferences uh, across the island and a lot of lobbying um, both the Irish government British government and and up at Stormont as well and probably where we had the most we could say the most effect of our efforts was with the Irish government and to some extent the Stormont um executive but you know as Catherine says the blockage remained
0: oh thank you and and, and filling in the wider context is exactly what I was getting after so th- that's great uh, there's another question here from Sandra McAvoy. And uh, she first starts by saying, uh, what a terrific discussion and presentation. Thank you, which I think we could all endorse. Uh, Do you presenters have any thoughts on the view of loyalist and Republican paramilitary groups on LGBTQ rights, especially related to their members? That's a big question. Um, um, well, I
2: suppose, I suppose what I was trying to say in the talk, is uh, well first of all LGBTQ people are everywhere um and so are in all of those organizations or in you know state forces non-state forces and um, and then what we have seen you know during the conflict and since is you know different i suppose different responses to that and um certainly the state response you know has changed um and you know, but there are still problems there as well. I mean, when, when I think of you know, still Bedellmis um, uh, research showing kind of continuity really in terms of relationships with the police and all of the rest of that. Um, within republican and loyalist um, military groups, yes, there would be. I think I think there's an unspoken uh, experience there. There's some some of that has been spoken, I suppose, through republican groups, and that's but we were referring to around uh brandy mcleanhan's article um there and but i think there is more to emerge and i i am not so aware of it in uh loyalist groupings i'm thinking that hasn't even come through in the oral history work that i have done you know in loyalist uh, and working with um uh, partner groups and loyalist communities so i just think there's a whole that's part of what i think needs to happen in terms of the emergence of this experience
0: thanks uh, catherine did you want to
1: add um i don't have anything to add no. so
0: there's a question here from uh, strun kennedy uh, it's, it's a sort of slightly wider question than i think that the dealing with the past issue although it sort of overlaps a little bit so you, you may or may not know the answer to it but Uh, Is there any campaign in Northern Ireland like TIE, which stands for Time for Inclusive Education in Scotland? Their recommendations were accepted in 2018. And then he quotes from one of the recommendations, LGBT uh, history, role models and equalities equalities education to be taught within all schools in order to tackle prejudice and bullying. I guess it's about asking to what degree are these issues discussed in school, taken on board, uh as I say I mean maybe it's not areas you look at but uh, I thought I'd pose the question
2: yeah so uh, well again I knowledge I might not this is not a lot but I do actually know there's probably you know people in the audience who could answer this because I saw some people come along here um you know who are parents here and you know their children go to school and obviously you're LGBTQ parents and um you know have been obviously Wanting um, that inclusiveness to be represented in the um, curriculum and the education setting, and it, it's not just even around being taught; it's about recognizing, you know, LGBTQ parents and you know parent-teacher meetings and all of those kind of structures. So I think there is a lot of work being done in that sector, and it is part of the story because that is part of the kind of in a sense, the you know, the building the better future part of this, you know, the reparation and all of that. So I don't have a lot of direct experience but um I think there's some work being done I don't think it is happening and maybe somebody can correct me more on this in the way that you're talking about that um you know this is part of every school curriculum I have a sense that there's that that's probably another battle to be won but if somebody can come in or Catherine if you know anything more about that
1: yeah I mean just uh, just briefly I mean the issue of um history education. I mean, I just, I know when the CEDO committee um, reported on the, um, the grave and systematic violations of women's human rights here due to the abortion issue, um, one of the things they picked out was the fact that schools had discretion over um, relationships and sexuality education. And that school discretion in that matter is again sort of tied to conflict legacy issues. Um, because there's a nervousness about limiting the autonomy of schools, given how they divide along um, sectarian lines. So um, to my to my knowledge, at least there isn't anything central and sort of standardised across the curriculum on that issue. And that's linked to it, this sort of relationship with sexuality education issue, um, which, again, is then tied to sort of sectarian issues um, and how how education is sort of part of that. Um, discussion.
0: Well, I think that's interesting, and I think the history issue is is a fascinating issue to consider. Maybe I'll throw in a, a question there because it, it links to this issue, which is really about if the Stormont House Agreement ever comes to pass, and we do have this oral history archive, and we do have a process of also maybe thematically looking at different types of issues, um, how would you see the issue of LGBTQ issues playing itself out there, do you see gaps and how that could be pushed into that? I know that's part of the work you were doing, but how that could be enforced within that agenda. Just any thoughts on those processes and how we could include these issues more would, would be helpful.
2: Um, well, with regard to the oil history part of it, I mean, I know um, whenever Aidan's Remembering um, was responding to that and, and, and the Stories Network, which is a group of oil history, projects and um, practitioners were responding to the stormhouse Agreement, there was definitely some scepticism about the idea of a centralised oral history archive and that was kind of partly in recognition of the fact that a lot of this work the oral history part of the work is um, there's a lot of it being done already and frequently it kind of emerges from grassroots processes so that really there should be a process we thought of trying to bring that work together and that's really where I would kind of like look I mean I mentioned some of the work that is happening already and you know Richard's in the audience and uh, has an LGBT um heritage project so you know how do you not displace that I think is really important but you do have a point to Brandon as well like if if that does happen if there is a, a more kind of official oral history project it would need to you know I think it would need to look at how to be as inclusive as possible. And there are a number of different ways of doing that. And I think there's, there's two things you need. You do need just a, a particular attention to this. So you need, in a sense, like a thematic approach. But then you also need to look at, like, if you are doing you know, oral history work around particular jobs or uh, particular communities, then you need to be looking for LGBTQ experience in there as well if that makes sense so um and that's not then just true i suppose that's what we're saying with the gender principles as well this isn't just true of like oral history you know it's also true of like other ways of uh remembering like if there were to be a museum or you know the different kind of ways the team to remember and talks about but also crucially it needs to be part of truth recovery and acknowledgement and um I was really struck whenever jeff and you know it was just an email that jeff dutch and i had but whenever he said to me that um the historical inquiries team wouldn't recognize some you know gay partners and friends as family which meant an exclusion there straight away and so you know how would we design a truth recovery process that's a way where you could actually integrate lgbtq into that experience as opposed to just sort of creating a separate category so there's something about how we design these processes i think that allows the emergence of the history and the experience and then the accountability as well
0: thanks Claire. Catherine, did you want to add or... okay
1: um well it's just to to say that this was something we you know obviously thought a lot about in terms of the principles and about sort of how do you um how do you design the institutions in a way that they do get it? Um, again, you know, the definition of harm being a key issue that um, how, and, and also, you know, whereas things like the historical investigations unit would be uh, primarily concerned with investigating killings, that the, you know, finding ways that the data collected through that process um, whilst it's not necessarily um, what like the nature of that process is that it sort of gathers rich data and then sort of, thins it out and then uses it for the investigation. So was there there a way that you could have um, a statement, a transferable statement through the different institutions and that you would be able to capture sort of richer gender experiences um, and that then could be obviously documented through those processes, but also really then put together um, with the the thematic gender investigation and that would draw from the oral history archive, but also the other processes. Um, to tell that kind of broader and deeper story. And it seems to me that within the agreement, it's there, if there's a commitment to it and if they're if it's staffed appropriately and um, yeah. Okay.
0: Thank you. Well, Claire, you mentioned Jeff Dudgeon. He's just posted a question, uh, if it is the same, Jeff Dudgeon. Um, and uh, he said, you sort of covered this actually, Claire, um, Claire's talk was especially thoughtful, enjoyable. The aim should be seeking a broader definition of family in relation to investigatory agencies. Um, so I think he's re, maybe reinforcing what you'd said in your exchange.
2: Yes, I mean, that really was was your point, Jeff, that it was you that made that point. And, you know, I just thought it was really, um, I, I just thought that is definitely something that needs to be taken into account. And then, you know, as well, it's it's just, you know, building on what you have said as well, Catherine, around if you you allow um, the victims of the conflict, even if there's a concentration on the uh, deaths of the conflict. And I would argue that actually we should be looking more broadly in terms of harms. But even on that focus on the deaths, if you allow the fuller story of people's experience to emerge, then i think you uncover all these other experiences as well but there is something as well about having a wider definition a more comprehensive definition of the harms you know inflicted by the conflict more than the deaths
0: okay thank you Uh, jeff actually added to his uh, comment a question and he said This would be an interesting one to hear your responses to. Uh, Should the greater male propensity to violence uh, be taken greater account of? So that's all it says. Um, So I I guess he's, he's getting at saying that if there were these dealing with the past mechanisms, how would we think about that in terms of male and female traditional roles perhaps? Or that men are more involved in violence generally? Do we need to take that into account and what your thoughts are on that.
1: Catherine,
2: I think you did say something about this around masculinities and...
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think that that's right. I mean, if a process is um, able to accommodate complex gender identities, that does also include masculinities um, and the structural factors that have led to certain dominant forms of masculinity through the conflict. I mean, I think that would be a question to investigate um, through uh, dealing with the past process. and. Something that one would hope we would come up with something meaningful about.
0: Okay, well, thank you. Um, there's another question from Anna Short, and, and she does say, You're ready to take the question from me, so you can ignore this if you want, but I'll, I'll take it because there's, none other, there's no others there at the moment. Uh, would you say, in the main fact, what is the main factor in the UK government's decision to overlook gender as a significant factor? within the northern ireland conflict so it's back to that 1325 question and deaf and planning framework i know that's a speculative question i guess in terms of your answer but really, thank you.
1: yeah i, I mean i sort of um i mean fundamentally i suppose our resistance to accountability is i think what's probably leading to our you know if you don't want to do something you're less likely to do it well right i mean i think that's um certainly an issue. I also wonder, um, I mean, I know one of the things that Claire and I talked about when we were putting the presentation together was trying to make the dealing with the past debate, trying to um, help people see how it is applicable to broader constituencies, that um, it's, you know, the easiest way for, um, I think, the, you know, the easiest way to resist a meaningful process in dealing with the past is to align it with Um, a small sector uh, of people who have been directly bereaved by the conflict and then to isolate them and um, to to deny them a meaningful process uh, whilst everybody else is getting on with kind of building the future and uh, um, one of the things about having a conversation around gender um, in terms of women and in terms of other gender identities is that it broadens out uh, the discussion and tries to bring in other constituencies and to have a broader set of people see the relevance of the debate um, to their own lives and to their political futures. Um, and I can see that if you're resistant to that process, you'd also be resistant to the genders as well. Do
0: you want to add or you...
2: No, I, I think that, yeah.
0: Okay, I might take this as the uh, last question. Um, it's from Leslie Veronica. I just want to say that I've been working hard in the VSF to ensure that gender will be included in the next ten-year strategy, and this looks like it was uh, is going to go ahead. But one of the obstacles has been civil servants just don't understand the issue or how to go about remedying it. Moving forward, can you see a way to reach out to this constituency? So it's a specific question about reaching out to civil servants. Mm.
1: Um, if, if i could just um just just one thing quick, we've a, a phd researcher who brilliantly just, who just submitted a really brilliant phd on not specifically on dealing with the past but on this question of the civil service in the north and its ability to do um progressive gender work and uh, her findings are fascinating she, I mean, she looked at domestic violence and some other issues but what she found was that um The actual pursuit of equality and human rights were seen to be quite politicized within, I mean, I should have her talking about this, but this was my summary of what she found. um, That the pursuit of, to be seen to be advocating equality and human rights, including gender equality um, within the civil service was deemed to be quite political and politicized. And it was not in keeping with the neutral role of the civil service, um, which has resulted in this very thin definition of gender work within the civil service. And actually she found a real lack of capacity uh, to do meaningful gender work in that constituency, and she had—I mean, she had a lot of practical recommendations around uh, around how that might be done. But it was really quite sobering, actually, the, both the understanding of gender work and then also actually just the lack of capacity.
0: Okay.
1: Thank uh, sorry, you. just that was Michelle. It's Michelle Rice's work, I should say. So. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, that's great. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, I think we've uh, more or less come to the end. We were going to try to wrap up for uh, 3.30, and we just wanted to make a few comments at the end. I might be rude and squeeze in another question, because I don't get both of you in the the same room, technically speaking. Uh, But as you were speaking, I was thinking, uh, on the dealing with the past stuff, there's always more of an emphasis on the justice delivery side of things, sort of truth and justice. And then there's less of a focus on these wider stories, on the wider context, on uh, the different community experiences. And to some degree, that has a gendered dynamic, that sort of justice is seen as the sort of masculine end of the process. And then in doing that, you then end up hiding all the stories below that because you look at perpetration in this very narrow way. And then because storytelling is then sort of given this sort of female identification you end up not hearing the complex stories of men as well and their vulnerabilities and so uh i just wanted to throw that in and just ask uh, have you ever thought about it in that way or what are your thoughts um in, in sort of what gets priority and how we miss things you know if we think of the Stormont house agreement we have like truth recovery justice storytelling reconciliation you know each of those have they have their own sort of gendered thing going on in in your opinion
2: mm, that could be true although i do remember brandon whenever um this is years ago i mean i've been working on uh, the falls community council of davis archive for you know about 20 years i remember a couple of years into it you know speaking to someone who was actually going to be donating some funding to it and his assumption was that all of the um you know, contributors or most of the contributors would be women and you know i've said no no we have to work really hard actually to get even the same you know 50 50 uh, percent of women um so but i also i mean the only thing that occurred to me um as you were speaking was that it, it, it's just this the relationship between all these different aspects of of dealing with the past And one of the things that I have noticed over, you know, many years, even though I work in what's called storytelling or oral history, um, that successive Secretaries of State, um, you know, whenever I have seen them go, a lot of them to South Africa and look at, do you know what I mean, different processes and always come back with this answer to dealing with the past, which involves storytelling. So even though I'm working in this field and I see the huge value of importance of it i present i think that um, that's always like the answer that comes back from do you know what i mean the uk government and it feels like another way of avoiding that do you know issue so i really think we need to find a way of integrating all of these processes together that's a very that's definitely something that healing to remember and we, with with would advocate for all of them together but i do think you're right around you know there's some the ways that some things get elevated by different people in different ways. But I still think the answer is the integration of them all.
0: Thank you, that's great. Anything, a uh, final word from you, Catherine?
1: Just my thanks. Thanks to Brandon for having us. Thank you to Claire for um, a really rich contribution and uh, thank you to everybody for attending and for your interest.
0: Uh, well, thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you to both of you. I'm going to just hand over briefly to Kate Turner just to do a a, a wrap up. Uh, But thanks again. I think it was really fantastic. Uh, I know we sort of say we shouldn't keep people online for more than an hour and a half in this online medium, but I would have been happy to keep going, but uh, we'll try and be polite. Uh, So Kate, if you're there, would you like to hop in?
3: Yeah, I'd just uh, like to reiterate your thanks both to to Claire and to Catherine and and also to the participants um, it's um, not as interactive in a way as we'd like to do things but it's great to be keeping the the conversation going um, and in, uh, in light of that just want to let you all know we haven't put the adverts up for it yet but our next um, seminar will be reconciliation and dealing with the past and looking at a, a global perspective um, from uh, Dr Farney de Toy. he was the director at the institute for justice and reconciliation in cape town and has since worked in myanmar and iraq so it ties in nicely there Claire, to your to your last comments that will be tuesday the 28th of july uh starting at 2 p.m local time
0: okay well uh thank you i'm going to let you wrap up Kate, okay okay thanks everybody
3: okay thanks everyone and uh obviously we'll uh as usual in a couple of days we'll put um the the recording of this up on youtube so that you can all access it and if you have any uh comments or suggestions for further seminars or how we can make this better please let us know thank you